All right, Tam Elbrin's blog. Oh, now I can hear Big Bobby DeSoto from the bridge. He, he has this thing where he tends to just send me little messages. A couple of uh, dinosaurs on fire, I don't know what that's around. But mostly I'm really excited to be heading towards my big pal Tin Man. I've been thinking about what I'm going to say to him and I, I think it's going to go something like this. I can't wait. What a guy. All right, welcome to the Gage. Here we are, four Gen Xers getting back together week by week to watch the show that made us sci-fi fans in the first place, The Next Generation. I'm joined by my cultural bridge officers to talk about my personal favorite episode of The Next Generation called Tin Man in season three as we are nearing the end. I'm joined by, as I said, three, count them three, cultural bridge officers, and we'll say hi to them now. Greg Tito, how you doing? What's going on, Eric? I'm very excited to talk about this episode. It was one that I remembered vaguely, but then as soon as I started watching it, I was like, oh, I remember every moment of this episode, and it means a lot to me, and I'm so glad to be able to talk about it. Fantastic. It's new and different. I love it. Kate Yeager, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I have to admit, this is yet another episode. Something must have been going on at the end of season three in my life uh, at the time, because these few episodes <laughs> are just a mystery to me. So uh, this was very another very exciting episode to be like, what's all this then? <laughs> well, maybe uh, uh, Greg and yourself can remind us all what was going on in the world. How about you, Jimmy G? How, How you are do you doing, Jimmy? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me that. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> I just, it's, you know, I, I'm sorry, Eric. I just have so many Star Trek franchises in my head. If I could just get some peace, I would be a lot better. But thank you for asking. Understood. Topical. Genius as always. Uh, we find ourselves examining, as I said, my personal favorite episode. So I'm very excited to hear that you all might not have remembered it so clearly until it got started. I can't wait to jump in. We're talking about April 23rd, 1990. What was going on in the world around this particular time and place there, Greg? There were a few weeks here between the last episode, Captain's Holiday, on April 2nd and this one on April 23rd. So April 12th, the Heinz Company, the Chicken of the Sea Company, and the Bumblebee Seafood Company all said they would no longer buy tuna caught in the nets that also trapped dolphins. Do you remember how that was such a big deal back then? Huge. Yes, that was like a forefront in my mind back then. That was maybe why I was not paying attention. <laughs> the trauma of the, the dolphins. Of season three. I was very worried about those dolphins, but no, legit was. Yeah. Now they just went to trawling hooks, so everything's okay. And I think that there's still packaging that says, like, dolphin-free. I think it says dolphin-safe. Safe. I do think they can say that it's dolphin-free, because it probably isn't. <laughs> there might be some dolphin in there. <laughs> I always just thought that meant you could feed it to dolphins. I was very confused. <laughs> they love it. And on April 18th, 1990, something that probably should have been illegal always, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that states could make laws to say that it is a crime to possess or look at child pornography, even in one's home, is the clarifying clause there. Which, again, oh. uh, seems like a, something that should have been illegal for longer than just since 1990. I know which party fought against it. Even in one's home, you say? Wow, that, that, that does seem very... Uh late in the game but i would imagine that that it did have something to do with expanding technology and accessibility that maybe warranted that but oof that's yeah, rough right and then that led to you know uh, jared from subway and many others like being prosecuted under those laws uh, based on this happier news april 25th 1990 <laughs> The Hubble Space Telescope was placed into orbit by the Woo! Space Shuttle Discovery. So all of those amazing photographs, high-res of the outskirts of space that have been taken by that telescope uh, all started two days after this episode aired. And uh, we got, for a couple of years, some, some uh, miscomedy from that, where people were always talking about how it couldn't take pictures initially, but it was not that simple. And, of course, they got that fixed very quickly. 
Right, with subsequent uh, space shuttle missions. Some other ongoing things around the unification of Germany, but I'll talk about that in subsequent episodes as, as more prominent things happen. But that's what was going on around this episode. And now we'll talk about what's happening in your neck of the woods. Kate Yeager, what do you think? Nothing compares to you, Eric Curry. And also <laughs> that was the number one song continued to be. Uh, actually, it jumped from the modern rock number one to the Billboard Top 100. So Hot. that was one of those times where... Uh, uh, you know, we got our voice out, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sinead O'Connor was having dinner in her fancy restaurant. That's right. After that. She could do whatever she wants. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles continued to be number <laughs> one. Our heroes in a half shell. Uh, turtle power. Uh, <laughs> speaking of green things, Dinosaurs premiered on ABC. I loved wow. that show. Jimmy and I talked at length about the, the final episode. Do you remember that one, Kate? Yeah, that's when the asteroid comes down, right? Spoiler alert. It was yep. a rough episode. Yeah, it was like so long and thanks for all the fish, you know. But <laughs> on Broadway, the Broadway chorus line closed after 6,137 performances, Ooh. also translated into 15 years. Wow. A generation of... Actors who hoped they got it, hoped they now got the tour. Uh, so... <laughs> Too old for the tour at that point. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. That is all that was happening in pop culture. All of it. The entire Totally, I entirely. Boom. <laughs> I did see one thing which just made me personally happy was the uh, premiere of In Living Color on Fox. Mm happened oh, during this okay. month. I just was excited about it. I'm like, oh man, in Living Color is so, uh, was a big deal. Revolutionary. Absolutely, yes. Here's a true story. When I was young, when you someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said a hee-haw honey. <laughs> and when I was 12, I changed that into wanting to be a fly girl. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah what that means about me. Thank you, J-Lo. Yeah, you want to be J-Lo. I, I went basically that same way, Kate. I watching Hee Haw with my grandparents to watching In Living Color with my brothers, and it was fucking eye-opening and awesome. Yeah, yeah. I, I trended towards that uh, lane of watching things from then on. As um, did I. Two paths diverged in the woods. <laughs> Deep in the woods. <laughs> the multiverse Kate of, like, Hee Haw Kate, where she would end up today. Right. I want to see the multiverse of country music with having Kate Yeager in it. Oh, bless you. Nothing compares. <laughs> Nothing compares to you. Oh, I fucking love it. All right, Jimmy, lay it on us. What was happening behind the scene? From the Nemesic Files. The script, Tin Man, was actually based on the Ace book from 1979, uh, Tin Woodman by Dennis Putman, the couple Bailey and David Bischoff. And this is our first look at a male Betazoid. And we also get a deeper look into the Betazoid culture because of that. There's a line cut from the, the show. It was filmed, we cut it out, and it uh, revealed that uh, Picard and DeSoto were actually lieutenants together. They served together, and that's uh, really explained a lot more of the buddy-buddy nature mm -hmm. that they had going there, other than, as we remember, that was Riker's previous commanding officer before we came to the Enterprise. And then a couple of fun things about the ship itself. So we have the Tin Man or, or Gumptu. The sounds that we heard inside were actually the design effect coordinator or effects editor James Wolvington's stomach that he recorded <laughs> uh, via Whoa. stethoscope. I'm so happy about that. But, but cooler <laughs> still is that the, the design of Gumptu was a blatant homage to the thermal pads from Buckaroo Banzai. I love that. Oh, Fantastic. Cool. Oh, that's cool. Of course they are. I hadn't put that together, but they look yeah. identical. That's awesome. Their end of the Nemesic files for the day. Thank you, Jimmy G. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive into this thing. Uh, I want to talk about the guest stars very quickly. We'll talk about Captain Big Bobby DeSoto like we had talked about. That's Michael Cavanaugh, who I'm sure you've seen 
all over the multiverse. He's still going strong. He has a, a streaming series going right now. His biggest credits are a bunch of guest stars and supporting roles in movies and TV shows like Without a Trace, Monk, the All the King's Men remake, which sucked, but he was great. Cold Cust, uh, Cold Case, not Cold Cuts. Bone, <laughs> Medium, Las Vegas, 24's third season, one of the better ones. Carnival, Boston Public, Holes. Gotta love Holes. Oh, he's in Holes. West Wing, which we'll talk about a little bit when we get to his fellow guest star. The Haunting remake, uh, also crap, but he's good. The Haunting, go watch the original one directed by Robert Wise, the director of the very first Star Trek film and one of the great directors of all time, 1963's The Haunting. Fantastic, starring, among other people, the great Russ Tamblin, who he had just worked in, with when he directed West Side Story. Yes, the director of the original Star Trek movie also directed West Side Story. All right, so after wow. the haunting remake, that we also have The Practice, NYPD Blue, ER, Lois and Clark, X-Files, Dr. Quinn, Dark Shadows, Matlock, all of that that I've mentioned so far was after TNG. And now before, Our House, Starman TV series, Santa Barbara, Scarecrow, Mrs. King, Iron Eagle, Cagney and Lacey, Amazing Stories, Stairway to Heaven, Highway to Heaven, uh, Every Which Way But Loose, <laughs> Matt Houston, Days of Our Lives, Hunter, The A-Team, TJ Hooker, One Day at a Time, Rockford Files, Kojak, and he made his big screen debut in the streets of San Francisco. Mm. Great career, but we move right through to get to one of my favorite actors of all time, Mr. Harry Groner as Tam Elbrun. His parents, no doubtedly pronounced it Harry Granit, was born in Germany, which comes up throughout his career as he plays German characters, uh, usually in comedies, extraordinarily well. His mom was an opera singer and his dad was a composer. He moved to the US at the age of two and became an apprentice a few years later at the San Francisco Ballet. And then he went to University of Washington for his acting training, playing Woot. in Seattle after he graduated and moved to New York. Once he moved to New York, he immediately got work in Broadway musicals. Mostly that's all he's known for in New York, but throughout the rest of the country, he plays classical leads all over. He's been nominated for early Tonys in his career for Will in Oklahoma and Monka Strap in Cats. He was a replacement for George in the original Sunday in the Park. And then he won his Tony for the original mashup musical Crazy For You, mostly based on the Gershwin's Girl Crazy. And that's where I became an enormous super fan past this this was uh, this episode was about two years almost three years earlier than crazy for you and by the time he came out in crazy for you i was a big big fanboy um i saw him on broadway as arthur in camelot early in his run he was wonderful right before this he was ralph right before this episode he was ralph the big old nerd in dear john a sitcom i watched regularly with my dad who was a big judd hirsch fan Big step up for nerddom was his run as the evil mayor of Sunnydale on Buffy. He was the reason to watch Las Vegas as the German chef Gunther. He still does stage work all over. He won the LA Critics Award for Best Actor for his Lear TV and film work. He started with no less brilliant a film than Brubaker, featured in Amistad. He was great in that American remake of Dance With Me because he is a hell of a dancer and it was a lot of fun to watch. Oh my goodness, a cure for wellness. Oh, such a fun movie, and he's terrific in it. St. Elsewhere, Remington Steel, Matlock, Quantum Leap, Long Order, great bit on Voyager, Mad About You, Home Improvement, George and Leo with his old pal Judd Hirsch, Just Shoot Me, Murphy Brown, Profiler, Charmed, Judging Amy, King of the Hill, West Wing, where he played Secretary of, I believe, Education, who was the last, uh, the one person left out of the State of the Union, and he had a nice little talk with Jeb in the Oval Office right before that. Terrific, terrific episode. Then we keep going with Third Rock, Boston Public, Drew Carey, Malcolm in the Middle, Roswell, I'm with her, one of his many roles as a school principal, Monk, One Day at a Time, Supernatural, Major Crimes, Ghosted, Young Sheldon, Disjointed, and of course, Modern Family. He is one of my all-time favorite actors, and I'm delighted to get to talk to him during this. Now, let's head to the cold open, shall we? The Enterprise is working hard at doing something that doesn't matter when here comes the hood. What is your reaction at hearing that another Starfleet vessel, and one we've heard of, is approaching everybody? It's on a fast course to intercept, so that's exciting. You know it's going to be important. They got some shit going on. And much more important than whatever star charting or chart no, starting whatever or whatever, whatever the hell they were doing. Vague sci-fi-ness was happening, and it yes, got yes. interrupted by the arrival of the hood, and then we hear... Good old Robbie signing in to talk to Captain Picard, and we get big smiles all across. As Jimmy said, that is where Commander Will Riker used to be second in command, and as we found out, Picard and Bobby served together as lieutenants. What I love is every time Starship captains talk to each other, they get to use first names. 
Whereas even with friends, if it's the admiral, they have to say admiral. And usually they keep to that. But this one, he got a big smile and first names going back and forth. Yeah, we're about like three seconds away from them being like, oh, you son of a bitch, and like slapping <laughs> each other on the shoulders and, yeah. and all that. You know, it's very evident. And I love, actually, my favorite part is is Riker getting ribbed uh, by his old captain. And then he kind of like sheepishly looks to Troy as being like, ah, I told you he's a cad. Like, I just, <laughs> I just love the interpersonal, uh, you know, connection here with this guy. Although he does lay it on pretty thick. I will have to say how jealous he is of these galaxy class boys. <laughs> no, he's, he's just smacking him a little bit. Just like you guys are in a fast ship, better than ours, get to do way more shit than we do. And in my opinion, you should always rib your betters. It's <laughs> yeah. necessary. It's punching up. It is. He has one more announcement. He's going to uh, give him his orders in person, not even by subspace. It's very important because he has a passenger to give over on this mission. And when he says the name, what is Will Riker's reaction, Kate Yeager? Tim Milburn from the one thing that made me really sad in my life. That's what he says. <laughs> yeah, he does. That guy? <laughs> and then it turns out, yes. Jimmy, what was your reaction to us getting a new passenger on the Enterprise? Oh, yummy. Let's see this guy. Is he the tin man? Because of course I didn't remember anything. So I didn't know where (laughs) it was going. And it's always a nice setup. Like but before that I was immediately distracted by the depth of field that DeSoto seemed to have when he was talking through his monitor. Because it's not always apparent that the person on the other side can see anything other than the captain. Because there's like usually a lot of furtive looks back and forth and like and they don't seem to notice it. And this one it was like wide open you could see the kids in the background doing stuff they shouldn't have been uh, on the Zoom. So Yeah, that's enjoyable really. You know, that they're not hiding anything from each other and it's just on wide angle uh, monitor. Oh, I didn't think about it. You could choose. So you hit your depth of field when you call in to the other ship. All right. Cannon. I like that. Cannon. Uh, <laughs> I like creating new cannon. So Troy was just as excited as you <laughs> to see that it was going to be Tam, and she asks to accompany Captain Picard down to the uh, transporter room. And he says, uh, well, do you know him? And she's like, well, yeah. How does she know him, though? As colleagues, eh? Just a, a HIPAA violation after HIPAA violation after HIPAA violation. Like, again and again and again and again. Not only revealing that he was a patient, but then later on revealing oh, things yeah. that he we'll said as a patient. Come on now. Yeah, Troy, Troy. Is, uh, Troy. Well, it's not just Troy. Once we get there, the doctor leaps full in as well. Also true. Yeah, in this moment, it's, uh, as, as Greg was starting with, uh, the captain went, oh, he was a student uh, when Troy, uh, that's that's my Dudley Do-Right as uh, Commander Picard. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she says, well, no, not a student. And she kind of pulls on her collar. Yes. A patient. Boom. End of cold open. We're about to get a mental health episode. No doubt they will treat it all with extraordinary kid gloves and empathy throughout. She was a student who has a patient who we later find out is a very rare occurrence in Betazoid culture and a very sensitive and, and volatile and easily destructible personality. But they're like, you know, let the student deal with it. Like, <laughs> they're learning. They can learn together. Like, it's uh, ridiculous. Let Roxana's kid have a go. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Maybe she wasn't the only doctor that he was dealing with. It's possible. He was was... pretty screwed up, as we'll find, in a very empathic way moving forward. She was in residence as her, trying to get her counselor's degree. You were the assistant (laughs) to the regional manager. (laughs) That's right. And so we're walking and talking when we get back. We're walking to the transporter room with Troy and the captain talking about the soft cell with Mr. Tam. He's a gifted telepath. He's not really what you're expecting, Captain, which is probably more Luwaxana reference. Um, so mm. we come into the transporter room. Data has tagged along like a little puppy. O'Brien gives Tam. Yay for O'Brien! There he is! <laughs> O'Brien's back! O'Brien's back! He has a couple of moments of actual effectiveness in this episode. <laughs> 
it hits the little buttons, and we are greeted by the amazing, wonderful form of Tam Elbron, who walks right in, senses Troy right away. Data is such a surprise. He looks over his shoulder and literally does a double take. He's terrified of this humanoid he did not successfully predict, could not hear in his brain, and that's fun as hell. Absolutely baffled and a little delighted. How would you say, Jimmy, Captain Picard responds to having his mind read right away? Uh, well, he's very put off by it, <laughs> and he continues to be sort of petulant about it uh, for a couple of scenes, but understandably so. I, I want to address the very initial writing and directing of how they introduced Tam. Sure. Because they went out of their way to, to show that he can read what you're saying, but to me, it came across as the couples, and, and, and Greg and his wife will sometimes do this, where they, as a comic relief, she will pick up what Greg's saying as if she could read his mind, but really she's just following logically what he's already halfway through. And this whole first scene was like, you, I don't know that you have any psychic ability. It was pretty obvious what everyone was about to say when you jumped in on finishing their sentences. <laughs> so it just wasn't effective. And they later corrected it. There's a scene in the when they have a meeting, and it's like, there, it's perfect, because nobody says anything, and he goes right to telling them what they're thinking. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's... Uh, that's way more effective for showing how this guy's in your, can see your head. But right here, it's just like, okay, dude. But everybody knew I was about to say hello. You're not special because you you sensed that. Well, right? they, they did have that nice moment of him giving the entire long order to Data, several orders at once. Turns to Captain Picard and goes, right? And then he basically repeats the order and then changes it from 10 to 15 right. minutes. That was funny. Uh, that was funny. <laughs> which is both, both the uh, pettiness that Jimmy's talking about and maybe a little bit of a help to us at seeing that he's just going to go his own way no matter what. He's not patient. We see this sort of distinction between him right away because when he sees Troy, he calls her D, right? He has a nickname for her and there is quite obviously affection from both of them, you know, there, it's not, you know, she's not, un, she's surprised to see him, I think, but, you know, she seems like, oh, there he is. And then juxtapose that with then how he, he doesn't do that with her. He does that with other people. Right. Which is an interesting, you know, it's, yeah. it, it just goes to speak to their relationship and how comfortable he feels with her. But I mean, I wrote down immediately, this guy is the worst, right? Because like... <laughs> That kind of anticipation of what someone is saying, spoiler alert, happens all the time to women. And it just was like, let them complete their thoughts for the love of all that's good. <laughs> but I think it's a great introduction if we're supposed to be seeing this flawed character. Right away, we've already got Deanna making excuses for him before we meet him. And then that just continues. And you mentioned it, Eric, the impatience is what comes across here. Like, he's just... A jerk. He should know by now how old, you know, however many years on this planet, on this world, interacting with folks that doing what he's doing right here, especially at our first introduction, is rude. And he doesn't care. He just wants to get to what he wants to get to because he sees himself as the most important person in the room at any moment. Certainly. And that is what is is what's great about the scene because you see his thing, which he said, he alludes to later. He's like, I'm an asshole. I know I'm an asshole. I don't like being around people. That's such a great detail to get across. And I like that all the characters have to deal with it. And then that fascination with data at the end is. And it is a great way for the authors and the actor to give actual, real, useful reasons for a character being an asshole. Like he does know that they're going, going to dislike him. He wants them to dislike him. He wants to be left alone. If people like him, they're going to come ask questions. They're going to be close to him. He wants that gone. We don't know that yet, which is a wonderful piece of storytelling. Yeah. He's an asshole. Um, and that's fantastic. So Data goes and he takes his, his orders, uh, the, the orders. And in the meantime, we get another walk and talk, this time from Jordy and Will. Will's been mm. Jordy in about Tan being responsible for Will's buddy's deaths in the Garushta disaster that Jimmy mentioned earlier. So he's, he's filling him in with all kinds of non-biased shit. He's angry that Tam didn't stop idiots from acting like idiots, it sounds to me. What did you guys think about this particular discussion? I thought it was a great way to get exposition out, right? Because you mm -hmm. get what's happening here, you get through Riker's uh, POV and how that could have messed up with someone too. So you understand a little bit why Tam has reacted and needed the, the, the mental help from Troy. 
in in dealing with the trauma of that uh, incident. It sounds like you know, Riker might need some some help as well too, uh, doesn't it? Yeah, because he has not been quite uh, over this incident at all, um, and puts all assigns all of the blame on this person who had probably done a similar thing when he was on the hood when he was first introduced. So you're, you're he was already biased against him for being an asshole and impatient to begin with. And then we immediately go to the bridge where Data, Worf, and Will are unpacking the, the orders and all of the info that comes with them. And uh, what does Data say, Jimmy, when he finally gets a look at all of the stuff at once? Wow. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> Astonishing. If says, memory serves me correct. <laughs> it does. Your memory is always 1,000% perfect, my friend. What we get next is uh, the conference room where Data shows them the image of a star system that they're approaching. It's in the final stages of expansion and collapse, and it's about to go supernova. But that's not even it! Cam <laughs> interrupts Data. Get to the point! And then we get to the point. Tin Man, maybe my favorite character in Star Trek. We see a picture of it, finally. Uh, what do you think, Kate? What's your what's your impression? Well, now that I know what it was a, a homage to, you know, I have a greater appreciation. But it's it's seed-like, almost, right? It looks like a, almost like a an opening pollinating seed, which is uh, fascinating. Lit from the inside. Yes, yes. Even. Yeah, it's very evocative. Uh, I'm not sure what of. No, wait, I do, because uh, Jimmy, Jimmy told me. <laughs> but it is, it's also very, it's an unusual shape, and, and for what we see usually, uh, usually, let me say that word one more time, usually. <laughs> I'm perhaps ruined by Farscape uh, and the whole idea of a living ship as being such an inter integral part of that sci-fi series that, like, that was where my mind immediately went to, like, oh. Well, I'm sure that's where Farscape's mind immediately went. You know, the, right, the various sci-fi uh, organic cultures that right. exist kind of before this. Well, what about Doctor Who? I mean, the, mm. that's a living ship, so that, and that even predates it. It's kind of a trope now. But, but not organic. The living ship thing. But that's not even the real point, because the real point is that Romulans are going there. Well, that's the real point according to Captain Picard and all his war shit. We, we have the probability of Romulans coming into this disputed space for the same reason that Starfleet is now interested in it. So we're on our way. We're going. Starfleet thinks that it is a ship, composition and energy form unknown, and they think it's a starship and alive. Organic, born in space. Nobody knows why it's here or where it's from. Subspace communications have been unsuccessful. So it's important to get Tam there to communicate. It's a race to the Tin Man with the Romulans. All right, so now Picard at the end of this meeting games it out, out loud. Geordi speaks up that the Romulans will dissect it if they catch it. I think it's pretty naive to think that Starfleet would not. <laughs> <laughs> but Captain specifically wants Tam to have a babysitter as he works through all this stuff, because why, Kate? Because he can't be, I don't know, can't be trusted. That's He's it. an asshole. He even says, do you think I can't be trusted? And he says, yeah, I think you can't be trusted. He says, you didn't even think once about the safety of this crew uh, when you were talking about the Romulans, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't even come up. So I need you to be watched. So as at that point, Tam is about to leave. No, Billy Boy. I love that. I love that. That's where he senses him. Yeah, and that was a really good one where he, it, that yeah. was really got into, oh yeah, this guy knows everything you're thinking before it didn't seem like a parlor trick and that's uh uh really where it sunk in with me about it, his annoying ability and will threw a little thought after him and he turned back around and says i don't care whether you believe that or not and then leaves yeah and what i like about that too is that it's 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 the time that it would have taken for Riker to say that out loud to himself right like everyone has done that occasionally right and be like i don't believe that and i'm not going to say that out loud mm -hmm. but i don't believe a fucking word that guy just said and it was the right amount of time elapsing for that to happen and then for Tam to be like and and respond. And those empty spaces, I thought, were, were done really well because you could edit those out, right? You could just edit like, oh, he, he knows what you're thinking instantaneously and it would feel not like it was a conversation. But for this, the illusion that uh, you're talking about, Jimmy, was, was spot on. Well, and Will, as we have established very kindly, is a slow thinker for a, <laughs> for a lot of his uh, approaches to problem solving. So it's it's good acting all around, is what I'm saying. Right, but then also this is where Tam like says like, "Hey, look, I tried to warn them 
in this massacre and they didn't listen to me. They thought I was a dick and didn't listen to me. So it's not on me. And yeah. I think that's an important thing. But then he also kind of backtracks on that. A little bit. A little bit. But but it's guilt that does that. We'll get to that scene in a moment. Right? Yeah. So we come back and we're still several days out from Tin Man. And Tam doesn't seem to be getting along with everybody. He is described as unstable by, I believe, his former therapist uh, to people who are not him. Uh, the doctor <laughs> is also involved in this. They're all in uh, the sick bay, and he's telling the captain about all of his medical history, just like, I looked through his medical history. Captain, here's everything. And Troy's like, plus this, as Kate was mentioning earlier. What do you think about this whole scene, Kate Yeager? Again, so much HIPAA. So much HIPAA. Uh, I get that, I, I, like, I totally get the why, right? Like, it's the ship and you, what's your duty? Is your duty to your patient? Is your duty to the ship? And, and it's greater good. I don't know. I haven't taken that um, ethics course in Starfleet yet. <laughs> it's just amazing the way they just spill everything about this human person. But storytelling wise, it is very effective because... I start even just prior to this with the, I don't care. I don't give a damn if you believe me or not. I started to get that feeling of like, oh shit, it must really suck to be telepathic. Like to constantly know. And, and, and then even in there, like saying of, you know, the reveal that Betazoids aren't born telepathic, but he was, and what that must've been like to be a child. Like it's a, it's effective to, to give us some empathy for him and to see where he may be coming from it it sets up his relationship with d later on i thought immediately of the the villain um from the first episode a first season of jessica jones purple man purple man sure right which it's very similar Killgrave. Killgrave. he had just never not had this amount of telepathic control over people and what that would do to someone's morality and it's it's a wonder after talking through this that that you're right that Tam is as stable as he is given this gift slash curse. And I kept thinking about the fact well, the three of you and me don't remember because it didn't happen. Don't remember the kind of internet <laughs> that these kids grow up with now. The kids today. No, but I'm saying it's a yeah. experience. I can't relate to them because I didn't see the kind of weird crap that every kid sees by five now until I was in my 20s. Yeah. Like, I just didn't see it. And I, there's a lot of stuff I missed out on, but my goodness, there's a lot of stuff I was protected from as well. So this baby is protected from literally none of the worst thoughts of humankind. So it, she tells about how he was born with his telepathy, turned all to 11, and then is quoted as saying, he has some problems. We can all imagine it. He was hospitalized for stress a bunch of times. I do tend to love that all major telepathic characters throughout fiction are a little mentally fucked up. I don't think I can think of one that isn't. All telepaths throughout comic books and all of the fiction and TV that I've watched have real issues <laughs> with various things like trust, empathy, things like that. And it's super interesting to see a little bit of that come through in their description of him. But I would venture to say that his actual life is different than telepaths are usually portrayed, but we'll get to that. One thing to note here, which I didn't think about until we're discussing it, is that he's absolutely aware of this exact conversation. Mm -hmm. Like he even knows that they're questioning his abilities and his mental capacities now, based on what he says later on. He's like, I can hear everything, right? Mm -hmm. And Troy should know that too. Like Troy's, you know- But if you can hear everything, can you hear anything? Mm -hmm. Huh? What? But he has to be able to pay attention to it, right? So, like, he's got to have white noise. I think they imply that his brain puts it, takes takes time when he's overwhelmed, and then and and his brain moves it all into places that he can access it and understand it. But I think he's synthesizing everything. I really. So that's what I come across as watching it. He has a Google alert for his name, so anytime <laughs> someone says his name, that's got to stick out. One of those guys. One of the interesting things that's happened in Superman comics in the last 10 years or so is that Superman has a running list of words that he listens for, mm-hmm. including a code word that he has with Lois, including any any time kryptonite, any, any number of words is whispered even in Metropolis. He hears it, and it's one of the things that he uses to fight crime, and I find that really interesting. Oh, because he's got super hearing. I was like, yeah. he's not hes not a telepath, but no, No, but hearing. he can literally hear anything, so he, he waits for words like that to cut through the noise, and then he 
it's a super interesting way to, to portray super senses like that. Just like the NSA is listening to this right now. Ha-ha! Yeah. Hi, NSA. Yeah. <laughs> a little red cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> Will Wheaton sees something on these sensors that are right in front of him. So he gets to say something. Worf also sees something. And they kind of go, well, maybe something's following us, but well, we'll just keep an eye on it. We'll just keep an eye on it and move on. So they do that. Uh, Jory even says <laughs> that it's probably the Romulans, and everybody just kind of goes, ah, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. Should be cool. Uh, it'll probably be fine. Then we go to Tam's room, and now Troy and Tam have the real discussion here. They're talking about why the people on board dislike him. He wants it to happen. I don't like them, he says, but then he re relents and talks to his friend Deanna about how it never lets up. It's a tide I could drown in it. Uh, so we're starting to get why he's an asshole and, and to me even how his asshole actions are protecting himself and the other people around him from him. It's, like, it's not like he can really explain himself to them. They've showed they won't listen. Troy has tried to explain and they've kind of not listened. He's just overwhelmed. He wants to be in his room. I understand all that. Still a dick, but on purpose. So Troy tries to comfort him. She says that she understands a little, and I think that's really important, right? The difference between Troy's abilities and his. Was that something you all were thinking during kind of the episode? Yeah, that she's able to use her abilities when the plot needs her to. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a very employable skill. Yeah, no, I think that she's, she reminds me of like the Jean, the Jean Grey and uh, Professor X kind of, a lot of comic book references in this episode about like how they understand, but they're different, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. that they have similar abilities, but they experience them in, in very different ways. I I enjoyed this conversation. It's a long scene it is. between the two of them, and it goes in different... I love his description of the aliens that are basically Ents from Tolkien about... The Chandrans. Yes, and how they have these long rituals and how that he had found some peace there because while there were still these monolithic entities that he could speak to, it was slow enough that it was, you know, he was able to enjoy it. Uh, mm -hmm. And that he left that place only to go on this mission. So he had been basically separate from the rest of Federation society uh, for, for some years. And part that. of that is, as Jimmy was talking about earlier, uh, and I want to go back to you here, Jimmy, he, he talks about specifically how he could have warned Will's friend Darson more forcefully. And that's an, an interesting way to deal with guilt and PTSD, he, he knows that he did the right thing and wouldn't necessarily change anything. And that's what he says to people in public, forcefully even. And then in private, he's racked with guilt for what he could have done. I agree. It made, for a viewer, it made it very intriguing because it was a nice argument put out there. And I love the point of view of how you behave in public doesn't necessarily at all reflect on how you feel. Whether that feeling is a true reflection on what happened or not, it isn't as relevant. It's dramatically more interesting that he has the conflict within himself. But uh, what I thought about, about that specifically and what Picard was doing was, I was on Picard's side. It was like, it doesn't matter if you were right in what you did. The way you go about it made it very difficult to to work with you and that's dangerous like we we don't know what you're doing and if you're doing it for reasons that are in the public good or for your own myopic view of what is good and for somebody who can feel everything he seems to have a very singular focus on certain things which is again a really great dichotomy you know that he can feel everybody but he chooses to focus on one feeling in, in a very specific direction. Uh, and then also overriding when I was watching, it, I was like, man, I bet you this actor ate the shit out of Richard II or King John. Like just the choices he made immediately made me think of Richard II and the whole tetralogy and how like he probably lived in that for a while. Cause it was just, just a brilliant uh, put upon type of person. Uh, you know, grappling with the weight of the world and heavy is the crown kind of it's thing. It's so great. I get what you're completely saying, 
But I think the impulses are, are so different because we have an actual problem that we know the parameters of with him. The issue of everyone's minds is a real issue that he has, whereas Richard and some of the other kind of villainous, selfish people that you're talking about, it's, it's more of their own greed, their own... To this, it's, it's literally a matter of mental survival. So I get what you're saying, but I think the interior part of it is the most important part for this uh, myself as I watch. But the thing that's different also, which we'll get to and really understand later, is he's doing this for selfish reasons. He is involved in the Tin Man because he feels some kind of affinity and thinks that's his place in the world. But that is that selfish reasons or is it altruistic to Tin Man? It's 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 both perhaps. Well, well perhaps right. I mean, what's yeah? What's what's a relationship? What's a family? I mean, I know I know. Well, that's... What's survival? Like literal survival too. Like he, I feel like the whole time he really feels like he doesn't have much choice, and I think Starfleet can afford all this stuff. <laughs> well, that's true too. I'm more or less on his side. I, I agree with you, but I also yeah. it's interesting too that like Picard and Starfleet's Tam Elbrin is to Maverick as Picard and Starfleet is to Iceman in this, because he's basically wow. saying, like, you're dangerous. I didn't see that new commercial, but I bet it's good. I, I just recently rewatched the original Top Gun, so I'm a little bit like, oh, wait, T Iceman was actually right. I, I, you know, like, he, he is a maverick. He is just does things because he thinks it's the right thing to do in that particular moment, and it's actually very similar to this character, where he's impulsive and doesn't realize the danger that he's putting other people in by his actions, even though he thinks what he's doing is correct. And doesn't disclose all that he knows. Very true. He's dishonest about, he, he has information that he doesn't share. And that's important, which and when, which is revealed in this as well. Um, I love the whole acting in this. Scene. I just want to just want yeah. Yeah. Uh, underline great. everything you're saying. This is a very compelling scene. It could have been played in, in a very, very different way. But I just love this idea that it is a person who does not have a place in the world, feels it is mean and, and angrifying because that's the defense mechanism that he needs to be able to survive. Yeah. And the entire way that this actor portrays this role too, felt very much like this was a metaphor for homosexual people during this time period, right? Oh, yeah. Where they had felt that they were, didn't belong, didn't have anything. I've met a few men and women in my life who are this kind of acerbic character, lovable because I enjoy those types of people, but have put up walls um, with the rest of society because they had always experienced uh, the derision from mainstream society and stuff like that. So I just love that this was, even though it's a very sci-fi story of what's going on here, but this felt very real for for theater people, especially in, in, during this time period. I buy all of that. I, I'm not here really to argue for acquittal for Tam, but I would also say that I think it's implied that while he was on Chandra, he heard from Tim Mann. Uh, at the end of the scene where they are talking about, um, he, he mentions that he's in contact, she asks, and he says no, and then he says, well, yes. It's not like words, but yeah, we're, we've been in contact for a long time. And, and Troy is like, well, that's gotta be impossible. And he says, maybe not for Tin Man. So I feel like they've been, he's been in his head since he was on Chandra. And that's why he left, not because Starfleet approached him, but because Tin Man did. And at that point, it becomes an imperative rather than a, a thing that you can be nice about to get Starfleet to come after you. It's, the sun's gonna blow up in a couple days. Uh, <laughs> I need to get there. So I, I think that everything he does throughout this is necessary in addition to being a, a personality problem. Go ahead, Kate. Well, let's talk, let's, let's fast forward just a tight, like 30 yeah, seconds. No, no. We need because to. Because the next, the next moment is where what you're saying, I get you and I feel you, falls apart just a little. Sure. And that's the moment that he warns of the Romulan bird of prey without thinking, I don't know what's going to happen next, right? Because what happens destroys the bird of prey and severely injures and cripples the ship. Yeah, um, kills casualties on the Enterprise. The casualties doesn't mean death. You know that. Casualties means injuries and death. In, in death a on one ship, uh, definitely so, casualties yeah, and... Yeah. So possibly death. Dead yes. in the water, and not only are we dead in the water, we're dead in the water next to a star that's about to explode. Absolutely. So, like, mm -hmm. I am on his side, and he's too close to the situation. He's like one of those cops that needs to be, you know, like, or, or like the 
the medical examiner or whoever it is that's like, you're too close to the situation. <laughs> you're off the case. Oh, but, I agree. I, I do agree with Picard that he needs to be watched. Yes. I'm, the whole thing that I come through is Will. I don't think Picard's doing anything out of the ordinary. I think that Will is pushing him and poking him and doing everything he can to make his, his presence acknowledged to be unwelcome. So th that's my whole thing. I'm not, nothing against Captain Picard and the, and the steps that he takes throughout. So we go back to the bridge, right? Uh, we've reached the outer system, exactly what Kate was just saying. The Romulan warbird uncloaks. It fires on the Enterprise, which is then wounded and stuck in the water and approaches Tin Man, then um, our friend Tam does what, Greg, in particular? I love this. He, he, I like that he takes center stage between the two consoles, and then he says, danger, danger, do something. They're going to kill you. <laughs> I think he even uses the, before we know what the word means, uh, Gumtu, he uses the name. He does. Um, which I was like, what is he saying? I didn't really get that. And then, again, <laughs> kind of put it together later. I, I just like the sci-fi way he portrayed that, right? Like, he's, he's using his power strongly by putting his hands near his face. <laughs> Jimmy loves it. Uh, well, he pushes he pushes Picard out of the way. Yes. And I also love the hands, but the, <laughs> when he has his hand on the chair, and he's like in a almost like a sexual trance as the Tin Man is flooding him with I don't know information or joy or orgasms. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but he was uh, he, he was lost to everybody for a little bit there, and it was utterly enjoyable for me because I thought it was hysterical. It looked hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a soap opera at the end of the day, right? We gave us some nice soap opera moments there, too. What ends up happening is the Tin Man uh, throws a bunch of light uh, diamonds in a waveform at, <laughs> at the entire system. Yeah, it kills the Romulans and uh, fucks with the ship a lot, too, and fully incapacitates everybody. The shields are down to 30%. So we get to the point here where Picard tells Tam that getting somewhere first is not always the best methodology, right? We can let the other ship, as it approaches, we don't have to worry so hard about getting to Tin Man now. We have to do it right. Stop being so impulsive. So then we get Data and Tam hanging in the good old Data quarters. What did you all think of this particular one? Anything to talk about right away? Well, the first thing, and I don't know if this was true, maybe, Jimmy, you read about this, but it felt like there's a missing scene, right? It felt like there should have been another Data and Tam scene before this one, because this one feels like a development, especially after the Deanna and Tam scene where Tam's expressing his enjoyment of being with Data, right? Mm -hmm. So this felt like this should have been a second scene, but anyway. I argue that that, that, that scene with him and De Deanna is that missing scene, that it's mm -hmm. like progresses, that we know that, that they've been together in scenes that we haven't seen. Um, I don't know. It's just a meanwhile back at the ranch. And that he's seeking Data out. Like he wants to be with Data. Yeah, he, he does mention that. Mm, because it's enjoyable, more enjoyable. Yeah. I remember for some reason the, the use of the word Spartan in this scene is something that's been bouncing around in my head for, for, for decades. I didn't really, I think it might have been even the first time I'd heard that word in such a way. And I would ask, like, what does that mean? And then having to, you know, get it explained and, and, and looking up to it. And it's Going to been... the encyclopedia. Yeah. <laughs> I, I honestly, <laughs> pulling out the, the, the late edition of the, the paper. The Britannica. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, but I uh, also just enjoy, once again, anytime a co-star gets to spend some time with Data because you get, in some ways, the most honest portrayal of a new character and how they react to Data. I think you've mentioned that before, Eric. And, and you see it on display in this scene. Yeah, it's wonderful. They get right to it, too. Data sees that there is an interior to Tin Man. It looks like quarters. It looks like a life support, even. But there's no crew. Then Tim kind of asks him to extrapolate. He says, well, oh, gosh, what, something about the purpose. And Data says he's not really qualified to answer because he's not alive. Tam shuts that down right away. He says, you're the perfect life scientist. You're so curious about it and you don't have inherent biases. You observe everything. It's just the nicest. You think about humanity and are an honest researcher without trivial curiosities. Like, it's so good. He treats him with care and tenderness. It's not rare for people with demonstrable mental difficulties to express deep empathy for other people, especially if the other people express similar 
yearnings to them, right? It's such good characterization of someone struggling with mental health and reaching out for a friend that, that they think can help. It's nice. It is nice. I want to pinpoint that he just says it's okay to think differently, which is just beautiful. This whole thing for me, I like your allegory, Greg. I hadn't quite thought about it. I was sort of looking at it through the lens of neurodiversity and mm. b being overwhelmed by sound and by by light and by movement. And, you know, I don't have a ton of uh, an, a, an expert in that kind of thing. But in my work with students and, and my own life, you know, I, I saw it as that, like, it's okay that you don't process information the same way other people process information. And you don't have to hide that was sort of what I took from that. And it was a really beautiful sort of message. Majority will in engineering. Tin men fried the circuits, computers down, shields down, Romulans are still coming. The doctor says Tam seems like he had a seizure the last time he talked to him. So he confesses to being in contact with Gantu. Picard then asks Tam if he might convince it to come to Starfleet. Can you talk to them and convince Tin Man to come with us? And Tam says no. Tin Man knows that he's in the star's path and he's there to die. It's been thousands of years and he no longer has a crew. He hasn't seen one uh, another alien like himself in those thousand years. Well, what, what did this have you guys think, you all thinking? That loneliness, that feeling of yeah. just like, oh, that, that connection of like, that's why he's there. That's why Tin Man is there, is to die. It was not that he's unaware of his surroundings. Of course, a being like this would be cognizant of the fact that a star is about to explode. But that's its purpose and what it's trying to do here. And that was, that hit home a lot. And understandably, you know, back to your point, Eric, about like, that's why maybe this is a little bit altruistic and that Tam sees that this entity is hurting and wants to come help it. I, I literally think that, that Tam is doing what some people who have been uh, suicidal often do, which is realize that you just need someone to tell you they're there. Yeah. So with all of these things that he's talking about with Tin Man, none of its own people in a thousand years, none of its crew in thousands of years. Um, I think we get to the point here where he's like, I need to physically contact Tin Man to convince him of this. He's like, it's not going to convince him to say, hey, come with us. What is going to convince him is I'm here. I'm alone too. I completely understand. And we're going to get through this together. Yeah. And that's why it seems altruistic to me is because this guy who clearly had his own thoughts of suicide until he was saved by these glacial ant people. Here's this cry for help literally from light years away and comes running to the rescue the only way he knows how. So to me, that's the, the, the burgeoning relationship between Tin Man and Tam from the beginning of the episode. Yeah. So this scene to me and the monologue that, that Harry Grunner gives is that particular moment and it's overpoweringly wonderful the sudden outpouring of actual empathic love for Tin Man from Tam. Anyway, that, that's my take on this scene. I agree. I think the performance is impossible, and it's done so well. That monologue is impossible, I think, to, to just kind of stand in close up and go, oh, he's feeling all these things. And, and to make it through in such a way that I just kind of buy it the whole time. Like it's yeah. so dramatic. It's so Shakespearean. And I love it. What did you think, Jimmy? No, I, I liked it too. And I, as an actor, yeah. I looked at it and was like, wow, what if you're given that? <laughs> Here's it in the script. You have to stand and portray that you've been inundated with emotions and thought over millennia. Action. <laughs> like, that is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do because uh, yeah. it's not grounded in anything it's just something the actor has to conceptualize and then physicalize uh so uh even though i laughed at it and i still thinking about it laugh uh it's not because this guy's not extraordinary. Um, it's because he rose to the occasion. It was funny. <laughs> sure. I, I couldn't get to where he was, but it is not because this guy does not have the skills to pay the bills. I mean... We are suddenly confronted with the idea that we need to get Tam over there right now because the other warbird is arriving and we don't have shields, really. We don't have engines. We have nothing with which to get out of here. I just want to give a quick shout out to LeVar Burton for also having 
very difficult yeah. like uh, engineering scenes acting with extras who are probably told don't you fucking say anything because Definitely. we're not paying you and nodding and like I, I feel like he actually had to direct that scene in some ways because it is all Jordy LaForge techno babble blah 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 we're gonna swap out the things to do this with the things and he's got lots of business with these folks one of them is named Russell uh-huh. he gets name checked a couple of times and he's like oh, okay I'll do what you're saying with my with my uh, sonic screwdriver over here in the corner um I just kept noting I mean like man this really does ramp up the tension in a really really important way for this episode but it is just a monologue from LeVar Burton it is, and you're right. If any of those guys say anything, not only do they have to pay him more, but literally they would not be able to come back because most of these extras are extras in episode after episode after episode after episode. And once your character talks, your character always gets paid like they talked. So yeah, Troy and Picard are finally discussing the whole end of it. Say, we have to go, and Troy says he's going to lose himself. And Picard says, we're out of time. We have to do it anyway. It's the only option. The Romulans are here, frequency's open, not gonna happen. We're gonna kill Tin Man and we're gonna kill you if you do anything about it. So, okay, O'Brien sends him over. They send Data and Tam inside Tin Man. They are inside Tin Man, hanging. And immediately, Tin Man does that thing where he gives too much noise to Tam's tiny brain, but he recovers like Jimmy was talking about. O'Brien, back again, has Woo-hoo. transporter lock. Oh. And Tin Man has brought up his own shields and blocked everyone's sensors. There needs to be some trust now. There does. What are, what are you guys feeling during all of this back and forth? We're on three different, well, t- we're on two bridges and we are told what's happening on the third. Back and forth, back and forth. What do you all think as, as this goes down and Tam actually slows down to figure it all out rather than while everyone else is getting more and more urgent Tam seems to kind of slow down and have a, a very soft introduction to his new friend. I want to have like the twenty-four o'clock in the in the, in the corner, <laughs> because the it definitely it definitely feels like everything is coming to a head, and we have to be still for a moment, which is just like the worst, right? And the and the best at the same time, right? It's the yeah. it's the best to watch, it's the worst to feel. I like that the Romulans are are claiming the right of vengeance. I mean, like it's and and they take their time, let's just be clear, cuz they they could go any moment. Really anything could go any moment. <laughs> wow, it's a lot. I think uh, right there you get a Captain Picard reputation moment where they're not going to do anything. Mm. Right, because <laughs> sure. right, he's like, viewer off. Uh, like, he kind of like cl- hangs up on, on the captain in, in uh, the way only a Picard could. Yes. But I love the quiet moment of, of Tam explaining to Data what this all means. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's, such, it's almost like a, a, in a mystery, it's almost like the detective piecing it all together at the end and i yeah. kind of love that moment and it's all kind of culminated in that chair popping up and what a what what a chair means yeah. there's a really nice moment when tam touches the wall and his yeah. hand sinks in but data does it and uh there you saw like okay there's there's a bond here that doesn't exist with anyone else it's something a little special yeah and then tim tim man makes him that chair Data says, you know, the mission is is nearly complete. You know, we have to get this mission done. And Tam just kind of says, I'm not going back. Mm-hmm. It's not big. It's not anything. Just like, you know, this is this is where I belong. No worries. I'll take care. We, we will take care of everything from here. And it's it's really that this is where I belong is such a beautiful yeah. thing. You know, he says this beautiful line because uh, because Data reminds him of the the star. And he says, I will save him. But first he will save me. Oh, come yeah. on now. That's beautiful. And like, that to me fantastic. was what made this feel different than the neurodivergent uh, interpretation you were talking about, Kate. Mm. That's where it felt like this was two people, two entities who felt very different in society coming together and having that kind of like, well, at least I found my person, right? I found my, my bond. Fair enough. I like that. I I hadn't thought of that. I You know, like Kate was... Uh, approaching it from the neurodivergence metaphor. Uh, I was approaching it from the mental health metaphor. And the, There's a lot there. That's what's so cool right, about it. Right, but, but this is where it falls apart for me because, you know, the other people are great, but it's not 
the point is <laughs> to, to lose yourself with others. So I really love your, your use of the, the love metaphor because at the end it really, really comes together in that, in that way. So uh, Tin Man does his version of a Q-snap and uh, the uh, ships are frisbeed out of that particular star system. There's a moment after they turn around and the star explodes where they all just kind of go, oh, Data. data. <laughs> <laughs> and then Data walks in from the... But they didn't have the special effects budget to actually beam him. So it was off camera beaming. Yeah, so they just kind of... I thought Tin Man put him there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah. So I, there doesn't need to even be a beaming. He's just there. <laughs> Difficult to explain what happened, Data says. Uh, Tam found what he was looking for. We don't get an answer as to what happened with uh, Tam or Tin Man. Data found his home on the Enterprise and gets a big hug from Deanna at the end. This scene is yeah. where I lost it. I did. Tell me. I Tell me. was not expecting this heartfelt moment amongst uh, uh, Deanna, D and D. D and D having uh, <laughs> this, this nice moment together. It was it was not the button I thought I was going to get on this episode. And I, yeah, I, really, I was like, oh God, it's so beautiful that like Data has found his place. Always thought of as different. He's always thought of as other. He has more of an understanding of human emotion from his relationship here with Tam uh, and that he's found his place, like that just was was a really beautiful button to this whole thing. I was just so pleased that they didn't end it with a joke, right? They didn't do the yeah. freeze frame, you know, which they sometimes do. Like, <laughs> it's, it's really beautiful and it's really lovely. And, and Data says, through joining, they have been healed, which I just think is gorgeous. And I do f firmly believe canon-wise that they are starship earthing it around you know wherever and whenever <laughs> they want to be i mean sky's the limit yeah call it, i guess we can call it tam tam man now right tam man <laughs> uh i i agree i i think that little smile from deanna too is a little bit of a kickback to her uh conversation with tam about data about getting to know someone verbally instead of having any of the rest of it and so when data says that verbally you know this is this is my home. That that smile is so lovely. And the hug is just such yeah. a, a beautiful it gesture is. too. It even is. though it's it's a bit awkward hugging from behind the way she is, but you know, it is just like, oh yeah, that's that that's the proper response. Being like, like you know, Data is basically saying, I love where I am and I love my life and I love my crew. And she's just like saying, Yeah, I do too. But non verbally in, in such a beautiful <laughs> way. Agreed. Now Jimmy, you got any final thoughts and why don't you turn it into your uh your rating system for this particular episode. Oh, yes, happy to. Uh, I am going to give this one 8.5 space seeds. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a great episode, watched or not, absolutely. Does it necessarily inform anything for the rest of the TNG universe? But uh, it certainly informs, uh, it helps to build affection and love for the characters uh on the starship enterprise uh and as you guys just pointed out especially for data and and troy in the, that final moment it, it's just precious uh and as you guys have argued all throughout or not argued but presented there's multiple ways to see um this character of tam uh and his motivations um and that is just really good writing when you can put a good logical argument forth as to how it impacted you. And not that you have to just say your feelings, but uh, you know, you don't have to imprint this. It, this is, it's there in the, in the dialogue, in the things that are given to you. It has multiple ways of looking at it. And that is what good sci-fi does. It's a, it's a prism that breaks apart the light and you see different things and that's why i love it and this episode is is a gem 8.5 kate what do you think uh i'm gonna give it a, a nine day ritual for saying hello <laughs> <laughs> i think what what jimmy just hit upon you know anytime that that an audience can put their point of view or or see themselves i should say in a character and, and come at it from multiple points of view. Like, like Jimmy said, it's, it's clearly effective writing married with a very effective set of performances um, by a guest star who 
you know, I, I think of some of the other guest stars we've had in the past, some great, some would not have risen to this level. So <laughs> they chose wisely in this. It doesn't set up necessarily a, a lot for canon wise, you know, our, our overall or overarching story, but I love what it does for data and how we see yet again, another sort of step forward on his journey. And I really like it for those reasons. Hell yeah. Nine. What are your thoughts, Greg? I'm going to, I'm going to go even farther. I'm going to go nine and a half Farscape inspiration points. <laughs> uh, because more I think about it, the more I think this episode was directly an inspiration to uh, the Jim Henson company and everybody putting together that episode of the headcanon of like, what happens after? Like, what happens now? There's this living ship out there with one, maybe they gain more crew. What does that crew all mean? And then all of a sudden you got an entire show. And I think that's what this, this uh, episode does. Um, I love it for all of the metaphors about life and existence and human relationships that it, it explores. Um, all the interpretations we've talked about, I love that uh, the performance by Harry Groner, I was not aware of his name, but his performance here is just so evocative of someone who... Uh, an architect that I've, I've known for, for many years, like just not feeling like they fit in in any situation. Uh, it comes off to some as, as a dick, but is actually just full of love and empathy and doesn't know how to express it quite with uh, the people that he meets. And then he meets someone who he is able to have that wonderful symbiotic relationship and, uh, and forms a um, you know, a more a more permanent relationship there. So it's just so beautiful. It's a great sci-fi story. It's a great human story, and it elevates, you know, uh, all of all of storytelling, not just sci-fi. It is it's just wonderful. Well, that's fantastic. I'm going up the steps from eight point five to nine to nine point five, and y'all know that I was going to go with ten. Amazingly built sets representing a bridge on an organic ship that looks to me like an inner ear. <laughs> Such an amazing episode. I do think it is my favorite episode of Star Trek. It has lasted the test of time. I'm certain I've seen this episode 50 times. I, there's nothing else to say for it for me. You all summed it up extraordinarily well. I'm so proud to have been with you on this particular one. Got a little teared up a couple times. Thank you for everything. Thank all of you for listening. And we'll be back next time with another episode of Re-Engage. Re I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> God damn it, I just wet my pants. <laughs> well done, everybody. We did it. That was fun, y'all. We appreciate you for voyaging with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at ReengageTNG to get updates when episodes are published. You can follow our various cultural bridge crew on all of the social medias. Kate Yeager is Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Reengage is edited by me, Greg Tito. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo97. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you so much for listening. Stand by now as Dr. Beverly Crusher is ready 